0: Hi, welcome to another episode of Science Rehashed. I'm Shen, and I'm joined here by Mehdi and his beautiful cat, Dr. Tesla, perfect for our topic of the day on mental health. Today, we're interviewing Dr. Susan Whitefield-Gabrelli. She is a professor at Northeastern University and MIT, and she recently published a paper in JAMA Psychiatry really looking at how to understand the neurodevelopmental trajectory of psychiatric symptoms of mental disorders.
1: Absolutely. They conducted a four year study on children at age seven. They observed the connectivity patterns between specific brain regions as the children age to 11 using fMRI.
0: And this is really important because of the current public health focus on mental health awareness. One in 25 adults and one in six adolescents are suffering with some form of mental disorder, and recently the WHO introduced a action plan to implement governance for mental health, as well as increase access to services in local communities and improving strategies for prevention and increasing investments in basic science research regarding mental
1: health. And this study asked few questions including can blood flow to these regions tell us anything about change in children's behavior? or the risk of developing depression or ADHD, as well as, are we getting any closer to finding a promising biomarker for psychiatric illnesses? So for these questions and many more, let us ask today's guest, Dr. Suzanne whitefield Gabrielli. Thank you very much, Suzanne, for joining us today for this episode. I would like to ask if you could please introduce yourself
2: Sure. Uh, My name is Susan Whitfield-Gabrielli. I'm a professor in psychology at Northeastern University, and I'm the director of the Biomedical Imaging Center.
0: And how has your passion career brought you to researching psychiatric disorders? I've actually had quite a circuitous academic journey. I was always
2: told that I should follow my research passion and, and curiosity, and I did just that. So I have been interested in mental disorders for many years and have been specifically interested in exploring ways that we can look at preventative approaches towards treatment programs. From that perspective, I was really interested in kind of Eastern approaches towards preventive medicine. And so right after high school, I went to Taiwan for three years to study Eastern medicine. And then after that, I decided to be really interested to um, bridge Eastern and Western medicine. So I went back to the United States and went to UC Berkeley to major in pre-med so that I could become a psychiatrist. However, then my interest went a little differently. I was interested in biophysics, which got me a little bit more interested in physics, specifically solid state physics and quantum mechanics. And then I eventually found myself in a PhD program in mathematics at UC Berkeley. So I went a a little astray from my initial interest in terms of pursuing psychiatry. However, I did return to that field years later, So a number of years later, I went to the Department of Psychiatry at Stanford University, and there I used multimodal neuroimaging techniques to try to understand the brain basis of auditory hallucinations and schizophrenia. Uh, After about six years working there, I continued the research, um, looking at various psychiatric populations, basically focused on using multimodal neuroimaging again, to try to understand the pathophysiology of these disorders and to try to translate this knowledge into clinical practice. practice. So I worked at MIT between 2005 and 2017. And then most recently, I started my own lab looking at the clinical translation of multimodal neuroimaging. It wasn't until a couple of years ago that I actually went back to get my PhD in neuroscience. So I came kind of full circle.
0: Your paper was published in JAMA Psychiatry on the association of of intrinsic brain architecture with changes in intentional and mood symptoms during development. So, what was the motivation behind this particular study? And can you also clarify some of the big terminologies here, such as resting state functional MRI, as well as resting state networks. So um, the
2: motivation was uh, very simple, actually, twofold reason. There's a phenomenal epidemic in teenage anxiety and depression. And we may know this from our own family members and friends, but also um, it's been broadcasted with many different magazines and uh, the popular press. For instance, the New York Times Magazine recently published an article describing the phenomenal problem of teenage anxiety In the U.S., and this is consistent with a number of surveys. Recently, there was a survey sampling 150,000 freshmen, and they indicated that there was a dramatic increase in self-perceived stress. There was another survey by the Pew Research Center indicating that teens put anxiety and depression as one of their leading concerns. And unfortunately, anxiety and depression um, may lead to suicide. USA Today recently published that the U.S. suicide rate has surged to a 30-year high recently, with a threefold increase in girls as young as 10 to 14 years of age committing suicide. And that's consistent with a JAMA pediatrics paper that was published last year in 2019, indicating that the U.S. emergency rooms for attempted suicide doubled from 2007 to 2015. And that hits home for me personally, because I have two young girls and the youngest one suffers from some medical issues, including asthma. And so recently I was at Boston Children's Hospital and we were there in the emergency room overnight. And I remember seeing many rooms that had armed guards and the doors were open in those rooms. And I asked the nurse what was going on. And she said that for every room that had an armed guard, they had a child who had tried to commit suicide or had suicidal ideation. So I think it's a real uh, pressing concern that we need to address today. Um, Secondly, there's a big problem and challenge in psychiatry, I think, in terms of treating mental illness. Treatments for mental illness are most often done reactively, typically done by crisis, as opposed to preventively. So in this paper, what we're trying to do is to use neuroimaging to identify brain-based biomarkers that predict the future developmental trajectory of clinical symptoms in the hopes that once we get these early biomarkers, we can possibly provide non-invasive behavioral interventions like mindfulness interventions or exercise, which could potentially mitigate symptom progression and possibly even prevent conversion to illness. To clarify some of the terms, in the past, when people looked at functional neuroimaging, neuroscientists use fMRI to identify brain regions associated with a particular task relative to a baseline or rest condition. So for instance, if you're in the MRI scanner and you're looking at fearful faces, we know that the blood flows to the amygdala, then the amygdala has activation. So we know that the amygdala is related to fear. And if you were to flip that question or flip the contrast and ask what areas of the brain are more active during rest, when a subject's mental processes are completely unconstrained, one might be thinking about COVID-19 or global warming or Trump, or when they can get the next coffee. <clears throat> then you might uh-huh. imagine that the subject's <laughs> brain activation would be quite variable. However, it turns out that Mark Reichel and colleagues a number of years ago discovered that the brain regions that are more active during rest relative to a wide variety of attention-demanding tests are remarkably similar across individuals. And these brain regions uh, make up what we call the default mode network. And it turns out that you can elucidate this default mode network not only by looking at task suppression, but also by looking at the temporal correlations of different brain regions during rest. This finding was initially done by Bharat Bisbal, where he showed that the motor cortices, left and right motor cortices, are highly temporally coherent during rest. So basically, if you have somebody just resting in the scanner, not doing any kind of cognitive or emotional task, you can look at the time series of the functional imaging sequence. And then you can look at the temporal correlations of different brain regions that are actually anatomically remote. And what you'll find is that the regions of the brain that rise and fall in temporal synchrony formulate what we call resting state networks. And these resting state networks you can think of as like fingerprints of the brain. They're uh, unique to individuals and they can predict things like the trajectory of clinical outcome like we do in this study.
1: Awesome. Can you walk us through the study design and why you chose to have uh, seven years old uh, children and then follow up after four years, uh, how all this has been done?
2: So this is in collaboration with Sylvia Bunge at UC Berkeley and Laurie Cutting at Vanderbilt and they really spearheaded the data collection. They collected over 500 individuals. In this particular case, we're looking at around 95 individuals children, seven years of age. Then they followed these children for four years. Um, So it was a longitudinal design. There were many different kinds of questions you could ask at that point in terms of how the brains of these young children are developing and what those developmental markers might look like in relation to behavior. So when I worked with Sylvia and Lori, I wanted to ask the question, what might the baseline neuroimaging of these young children tell us in terms of neuroprediction of the subsequent developmental trajectory of clinical symptoms which was evaluated by something called the childhood behavioral checklist and this is just a parental screening form for children ages 6 to 18 that marks developmental competencies but specifically problems including attention or anxiety and depression so they took the CBCL at baseline when the children were just seven years old, and then they sampled the children both behaviorally as well as with neuroimaging when they were eight, nine, 10, and 11. So uh, we had a lot of data, but my primary question was, can we have the baseline neuroimaging data predict the trajectory of symptoms as measured by the CBCL? And specifically, could we look at fine neuroimaging For instance, use the resting state networks that I described a minute ago to predict the change of CBCL, anxiety, and depression or attentional problems four years later.
0: And then what specific regions of the brain did you look at and what did you find?
2: The first brain network we were interested in looking at was called the default mode network. And the default mode network is an identified neural system that is associated with free wandering of the mind, and is associated with one's self, one's reminiscence of the past, one's introspection of present thoughts and feelings, and one's plans for the future. And it turns out that the default mode network, which encompasses a region of the brain, which is in the front, called the medial prefrontal cortex, is negatively or anti-correlated to executive regions, for instance, and the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, which is in the front of the brain, but on the side of the brain, that's involved. in the frontal parietal network, which is engaged in executive function. So the default mode network and executive frontal parietal network are negatively or anti-correlated in time. So when one brain region goes up, the other goes down in terms of the bold fMRI signal. We and others have shown that the magnitude of the anti-correlations, the default mode network and the frontal parietal network are correlated with the function measures such as complex working memory. And so we knew this, and so we were curious if we could look at the baseline degree of default mode network and frontal parietal network anticorrelations to predict changes in attention. It, it turns out that default mode network and the frontal parietal network are actually positively correlated in children of this age, but and that doesn't turn negatively correlated or anticorrelated until people become teenagers. Mm-hmm. However. Even though on average it's positively correlated, there is enough variance, or so there's enough individual differences in the magnitude of these correlations that you can actually predict changes in subsequent um, attentional problems. So, when you look at the degree to which the MPFC, say in the default mode network, is negatively or, or positively correlated to the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, which is part of the frontal parietal network, the, the connectivity between those two regions significantly predict. Change in attentional problems as measured by CBCL. So, uh, this is a normative pediatric sample. It's a community sample. A number of people got better and a number of people got worse. And the interesting part of this study is that we could predict at baseline who might develop attentional problems, and attentional problems on CBCL is actually used to screen for ADHD. So, you might get worse in a um, without yet having a clinical diagnosis, but you could be headed that direction.
1: How you limit the lifestyle factor? Each child has a different lifestyle, has a different environmental factor. How this excluded from the study?
2: It's an excellent question, and people do have different lifestyles, and in fact, people do rate differently on the behavior and clinical profiles that we ask about at baseline. So one thing we do is we factor that baseline severity out. So if we are interested in using neuroimaging baseline measures to predict future development of attentional problems or anxiety and depression, the model that we use to explore that factors out the initial intensity of that particular pathology that we're looking at. In addition to that, like you mentioned, people have different lifestyles that we're not capturing in this model, but in fact, that's exactly what we are facing in the clinic today. So if you have a patient coming to you and you don't know, maybe that particular person is an athlete, or maybe that person already uh, practices mindfulness meditation, or who knows what the background of that particular person is. The goal here is to be able to get a scientific biomarker, the brain-based biomarker that
0: will predict the future trajectory of the clinical symptom regardless of trial since you mentioned about biomarkers how useful tool is brain imaging for different psychiatric diseases I think there are three
2: aspects to that question in terms of brain-based biomarkers I think uh, neuroimaging can be a phenomenal help in the clinical for three reasons one um, as I mentioned a little bit briefly Previously, in psychiatry, the treatments of mental illness are most often done reactively instead of preventively. So if we can have brain-based biomarkers that actually predict the future development of psychopathology, then we can offer early interventions that don't have negative uh, consequences or adverse side effects. And secondly, we know that treatments in psychiatry are often based on trial and error, despite the fact that we know there is great patient heterogeneity in treatment response. So in this case, we want to use neuroimaging to identify brain-based biomarkers that predict treatment outcome so that we can design individual treatment programs and gear towards precision medicine. And finally, the treatments for depression or psychosis or uh, many different psychiatric disorders often have adverse side effects, which not only contribute to the lack of adherence to a particular treatment program, but they can often contribute to additional health problems, like in the case of antipsychotics. So we're also using um, neuroimaging methods along with behavioral interventions like mindfulness, meditation to try for very novel treatments.
0: And one of the potential, I think, disadvantages to neuroimaging is the economic cost of each of the imaging sessions. Do you think in the future, it'll become sustainable clinically to be used as a predictive measure for a number of psychiatric diseases, both preemptively and also as a diagnostic tool?
2: I would argue two things. One, I actually don't think that neuroimaging is expensive compared to the cost of treating psychiatric disorders and compared to the cost of pencil and paper clinical workups. But I do agree, it, it, you can't have an imaging center and, and every clinic and, and it does cost you know, hundreds of dollars per scan. So what we're trying to do is find electrophysiological correlates of the brain regions that we have identified as being valid biomarkers. So we're looking at EEG for that, so, which has very high temporal sampling and is easy to scale up. Once we have those EEG correlates, we can um, more easily scale this research so that it is practical.
1: Do you think this will be affordable for the unprivileged communities and, and patients across the country in the future?
2: so we're working really hard. We're striving to make it available. And there's a number of ultimate goals that we have for that. So we're not only looking at EEG signals that might be correlates of the fMRI signal we're looking at as brain-based biomarkers, but we're also looking at other things in terms of physiology that's easy to record. And ultimately, it would be nice to translate that into digital feedback so that we can have treatments or diagnosis based on iPhones.
0: You mentioned there's a lot of person-to-person variability in terms of resting state, even though there are a lot of similarities. However, in terms of limitations, do you think for future studies and to be used in the clinic, what is the number of patients you need to examine before you can really solidly conclude something regarding a child's psychiatric health?
2: by no means want to oversell this, but we are not to the point where you can put a seven-year-old child and predict whether that person will get ADHD or anxiety and depression. Mm -hmm. Certainly not. However, we are attempting to look at more and more models where we train on one data set and test on another so that we get individual test outcomes. So we can do that a number of ways. In this particular case, I was really excited because we looked at these seven-year-old children and we found these biomarkers that predict development of anxiety and depression as measured by the CBCL. But we also replicated this in two other samples. One was published in the JAMA Psychiatry paper and one was not. We just recently replicated it in a different group. So the first group was with this community sample. Um, And that in itself is rare because typically when you do longitudinal studies where you're looking at brain imaging predictors or brain-based biomarkers of behavior or clinical pathology, typically people use individuals who are at genetic or clinical risk for developing that disorder. in this particular case, we're moving the field forward by just looking at the community sample. So that's an advance there then we try to extend this model to look at the same brain-based biomarkers in different individuals. And in this case, we were looking at a different study where the children were at genetic risk for developing depression because they had a parent with major depression. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a five-fold increase in the child developing depression if they have a parent with depression. And so these children were not diagnosed with any psychiatric disorder, and we followed them longitudinally. What we found was that the same brain-based biomarkers that predicted subsequent worsening of anxiety and depression in the first sample also predicted worsening and anxiety and depression in the second sample of those children who were at genetic risk. And we were also able to use these resting state networks to predict who would and would not convert to the clinical diagnosis. And thirdly, extended this model to test on teenagers who have anxiety and depression. And this is part of a human connectome project that we have. For disease. And here we looked at 200 adolescents between ages of 14 and 15 who had anxiety and depression, and we followed them longitudinally from a behavioral standpoint. So we continued to collect measures of depression and anxiety six months after they got their initial neuroimaging workup. And what we found was the same regions of the brain significantly predicted subsequent worsening of anxiety and depression in teenagers. So we're hopeful that by this kind of replication, we are getting closer and closer to our ultimate goal of being able to really predict on in an individual level.
0: That's fantastic. What tools or technologies on the horizon should we be looking forward to to transform neuroimaging and the way we go about the current science?
2: I think it's the scalability aspect. Right now, we're um, doing cutting-edge or bleeding-edge technology where we have a grant to look at individuals who have schizophrenia and who suffer from auditory hallucinations. And with this grant, we do a baseline resting state network evaluations. What we do is real-time fMRI neurofeedback. So in this particular case, we have the patient's lying in the scanner, and then we target clinical regions of interest. And what we find is that we can train individuals who have schizophrenia to modulate these regions that we know are clinically relevant and are related to things like auditory hallucinations. And then what we can look at is the modulation of the resting state networks, which we know are plastic. We can look at how real-time fMRI um, modulation of these networks uh, result and modulation of the pre post resting state network. So, the design is that we have a pure resting state network evaluation. Then we engage them by training them how to push down, see their default mode network, which we know is typically high for patients with, with schizophrenia, and push up the frontal parietal network, which we know is typically low for these patients. And then we train them to modulate these brain regions, make them more anti correlated. And by training them to do that, we get a subsequent. Decrease in the default mode network hyperconnectivity that we typically see that was related to auditory hallucinations, and we increase anti correlations, which increases cognitive performance. The trick here is that we also invoke mindfulness meditation because we know mindfulness meditation pushes down the default mode network, pushes up the final parietal or central executive network. But the patients perform mindfulness meditation while they're seeing feedback of their brain activation. Patients are able, A, to perform mindfulness meditation quite well, and B, they're able to modulate the necessary brain regions. At the end of the day, these patients have a significantly reduced level of auditory hallucinations and the degree to which the auditory hallucinations hallucinations are reduced, correlates with a reduction of the default mode network, and an increase in the frontal network. We're, we're experimenting with patients with schizophrenia to train them to modulate the clinically relevant regions of the brain that are related to auditory hallucinations, which then result in a subsequent mitigation of the hallucinations. What I'm hoping is that we can do the same thing with people who are suffering from anxiety and depression, or even people who don't yet have anxiety and depression, but may be at risk. So in the future, I'm hoping we can train patients with, say, anxiety and depression to perform mindfulness meditation and push down their network and up their central executive, which would improve attention. Thirdly, the fact that we're looking at these electrophysiological correlates will hopefully make this type of intervention more scalable.
1: Do you think that this pattern is also evident in other psychiatric disorders, such as autism?
2: Yes. So there are many other brain-based biomarkers in other psychiatric disorders like autism that could be used potentially for better diagnoses in terms of differentiating between, say, major depression and bipolar, but also for prediction of clinical outcomes. So if we can use these brain-based biomarkers in autism or many other psychiatric disorders to say predict who would respond to a particular treatment, then we could tailor each treatment for each individual. We find these brain-based biomarkers in many psychiatric disorders that predict the future development of pathology and they predict treatment response.
1: What are some interventions that parents can take with their children that are at risk?
2: So we recently did a large scale study where we trained the teachers to give mindfulness meditation exercises to sixth graders. And when we had a subset of those individuals come in for imaging before and after the mindfulness meditation, what we found was the degree to which the amygdala, which we know is related to fear, was activated at the beginning, that activation in the amygdala significantly reduced after the mindfulness exercises and the degree to which the, the activation in the amygdala reduced significantly correlated with a reduction of self-perceived stress amongst those children. In addition, when we look at resting state connectivity, we found that before the mindfulness intervention, the children on average had positive correlations between the default mode network and frontal parietal, which is what we typically see. But after the intervention flipped from positive to negative on average, and the individual differences of this anti-correlation related to an improvement of attention as measured by a search task. So in this particular case, we've shown in sixth graders who are not necessarily even at risk, already can improve their level of anxiety as well as their level of attention simply by performing mindfulness
1: exercises. Thank you very much.
0: Yeah, thank you you so much. Our show is available through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts please subscribe and refer our podcast to your friends. We would love to hear your comments and feedback for our show, so don't hesitate to reach out to us via our website. This episode was the result of incredible teamwork during this hectic time by our wonderful team members, including our writers, Madura Lolikar, Dr. Shuang Zhang, Bria Taylor, and our marketing director, Dr. Carla Avanzo, our editors, Tavi Pollard and Sophia Nastri, our assistant Rebecca Solison and of course our creative director Emma Brand.